Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we talk about science and diplomacy. The big advantage of science is it's often separate from politics. All countries are interested in it, and particularly through scientific collaborations between countries, it's a form of improving international relations. And we hear about an immensely ambitious plan to computerise the social sciences and policymaking. Some of the major challenges that we face today are firmly rooted here on Earth in our social systems and how they interact with economic and technical systems. Therefore, our futurist project is aimed at solving some of those. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, is with me in the studio, and so is our other regular guest, Diana Garnham, who is chief executive of the UK Science Council. And our special guest this week is David Clary, the very first Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, who's been in post for almost two years. David is also a chemistry professor at Oxford University and president of Magdalen College, and he joins us on the phone from Magdalen from Oxford now. Hello, David. Hello, Clive. So perhaps you could tell us first what a Chief Scientist is doing at the Foreign Office. I'm the first uh, chief scientist that the Foreign Office has had, so it's been a very interesting appointment for me and for the Foreign Office. First of all, the aim is for me to give advice to the Foreign Secretary and ministers and departmental officials on science and technology and innovation, and there are many such issues that do arise. And secondly, I'm a contact in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to all the other cross-government activities that are going on in science. So those are the two main aspects of what I do. And what are the big issues on which you're giving advice right now? The big thing that I've been trying to push through our departments and, and embassies and high commissions in, in the Foreign Office is, is actually to use science as a form of diplomacy. I think the big advantage of science is it, it's often separate from politics. All countries are interested in it. And particularly through scientific collaborations between countries, it's a form of improving international relations and also a way of doing better science. So that is really the thing that I have been promoting. Is this what is sometimes called soft power? It's very much linked to soft power. It's of course something that's not just done in science; it's done in education as well. And it's something that, if you look through history, has proven to be quite a successful way of improving relations between countries. Can you give us an example of how that's happening? A more specific example. We actually run the Foreign Office and the Business Innovation Skills Department, what's known as the Science and Innovation Network. And this is a group of about 90 people based in、uh, embassies and high commissions and consulates. Some of those are people from the UK, and some of those are from the other countries、uh, locally engaged. We have people based in 25 countries, 
And, and what they're doing is, is working on improving collaboration, scientific collaborations between the other countries and the UK. And this way, we actually bring in research funding, which is important, of course, nowadays to the UK, and also tap into the abilities the other countries have, but also improve the relations between the countries. So it's really a win-win-win network that we have. Diana, do your contacts see this as win-win-win? I don't know that the professional bodies work that closely across the network as a whole. There are some very, very active offices, for example, in Japan, which I think are visible in the sector. One of the things that I think that the Foreign Office has been very helpful on, though, is building awareness of professional standards, which are high and well-established in the UK for scientists. And that is seen, I think, as one of the potential exports. Am I right? I think that that is definitely one of the aspects that the Science Innovation Network tries to promote. We have the very high professional standards and the scientific societies and, and academies, the Royal Society, and so on. And the network does closely interact with those groups and, and in a sense, promotes them overseas and promotes the good practice that they, they have developed. And are your science information officers also trying to promote British universities as a place for scientists abroad to come and study, whether undergraduate or postgraduate or postdoctoral work? Absolutely. I think that link is very important. It's actually the British Council, who are connected with the Foreign Office, who have the main link with universities in the sense that they sponsor studentships and the like. But what you find in the embassies overseas is that there are very good interactions between all the different officers who have the different responsibilities. And not just between science and education, but also science, business and innovation as well, because of course that is is very important for us nowadays. Andrew. Yeah, David, I just wondered how far you think or you've experienced the challenge perhaps of whether science sometimes gets trumped by politics and therefore, you know, how far you've been frustrated in your efforts perhaps to push a scientifically driven decisions by policymakers in international discussions. Perhaps I could give you one example where a very ambitious project that's going on in Jordan, which is a project called Sesame, the aim is to build a synchrotron in apparatus in the Middle East where people from all the different Middle Eastern countries can go and work and do experiments in areas like material science, biology, and so on. And the countries involved are really quite remarkable. It's being done in Jordan, but Israel are involved, Egypt is involved, even the Palestine Authority is involved, Cyprus and Turkey and Iran. And so there are very few projects like this in the world which are trying to bring all these different countries together and to collaborate. Now, you can imagine, especially at the current time, that the politics of this is quite complicated. A synchrotron is a major apparatus that leads a lot of money to build it and keep it going. And so quite clearly, the politics involved in that has been complicated, but it's a very worthy project. Another area that I think that the networks can be useful on is the sort of altruistic user demand on UK science. I'm aware that they are seen by quite a lot of the developing world as a place to put forward the questions and requests for help that they need from the science community. Is that something that can be developed more, do you think? 
Absolutely. I, I think that is a, an important aspect. So far, the science and innovation networks has really interacted with developed countries. It's obviously very big in the United States, in Europe, in some Asian countries, Japan, China, and India. And we are now proposing to move a little bit further away from that to countries that are developing. We will be putting officers, for example, in South Africa. We're intending to put somebody in Turkey. We hope to put somebody in Nigeria and to move a little bit away from the fully developed countries, but to other countries who are emerging and having emerging interest in science. Lastly, before we leave your work, I'd like to ask about your role in a crisis. The most recent one where I saw your work mentioned was in Fukushima, where there was a lot of alarm amongst the British community in and around Tokyo. What did you do there? What has happened is that John Beddington, who is the chief science advisor to the government, to the prime minister, has set up what's called a science advisory group for emergencies, which is called SAGE. And I represented the Foreign Office on that group. But there are many other people that Professor Beddington mobilized very quickly in the Japanese emergency, obviously getting people who are experts on nuclear issues, on health issues, on issues involving weather and the atmosphere, getting all those groups together very quickly to make predictions on what might happen as a result of the difficulties involved in Fukushima. And the role that we played was to link some of that information back to the embassies and to the British community in Japan. So that was a very active time for many of the government scientists. And I have to say, I I was very impressed how um, Professor Beddington managed to mobilize all the relevant people in a very short time to give the best scientific advice. Okay, thanks, David. Now, let's talk about how computer science could help people in government, like David Clary, make policy and also to handle crises more effectively. Earlier this month in Budapest, the European Union announced a short list of six ambitious flagship projects in its Future and Emerging Technologies programme. The two winners will receive around a billion euros each over 10 years. One of the shortlisted projects, called Futurist, aims to mobilise information and computer technology for the benefit of society worldwide. Its coordinator, Professor Stephen Bishop of University College London, told me about his grand plan. Well, we believe that some of the major challenges that we face today are firmly rooted here on Earth in our social systems and how they interact with economic and technical systems. Therefore, our Futurist project is aimed at solving some of those. And how are you going to do that? Something as immensely complex as you've described. Well, complex is the key word. The first thing we do is have to understand the complexity of the problem. We have to get together people from social sciences and computer science to try and help us unravel the complexity and the interactions between our social systems. The trouble with something as grand as this, a challenge as grand as this, is to try and illustrate it with some specific examples and not just make it sound too general, though it is very wide-ranging. How can you sort of bring it to life for people? What will you help them do? If you think about the problems of of obesity, you have to think about transport systems and schooling and education, and it becomes also a very big problem then. So you really do need to try and understand how those things interconnect with each other. 
So if you're also looking at energy systems, you have to think about people, how people use that energy, not just where you get it delivered from, it's how people actually interact with that. There's also a lot here that will help manage, even predict crises, isn't there? Yes, one of my fundamental aims for myself personally is to try and have these decision spaces so that we can actually manage and predict crises in the future so that we can perhaps mitigate against them. And as part of the project, there are going to be a series of crisis observation centres. How will they work? Well, we call them crisis observatories. We want to have these in areas such as health and transport and energy and finance, of course, so that they can take data in from what's being sent to them from outside, but also then transmit that to each other so that we can see how they interact with each other. How about economic and financial crises, which will be of particular interest to our listeners? Oh, if only we could do that, then the, the one billion we would be getting would be very well worth money spent. You know, if we, we could just do something to help us try and understand the complexities and the connections in the financial markets, then we would be saving us millions of pounds per day. Well, over the next year or so, obviously, your biggest challenge is going to be to pull it all together and make a proposal that will get you those billion pounds from the European Union and other sources. If you do, what then will be your biggest scientific and computing challenges? I think, actually, our biggest challenge is to convince people. It's people that are going to drive this. So we need to convince people that we have this vision that we will be able to improve society. Of course, if we improve it, they won't necessarily see what's happened. It's all happening without them knowing because we want them to be uh, able to participate, but we, we don't want it to be too, too much effort for them. Is the biggest challenge of all going to be one of data management, how to collect and analyse and distribute and give people access to all the data? One of our prime goals is, is not to really house the data in one location. We don't want to have a place where all the data is stored. We want people's individual data to be aggregated up so that we don't actually store that. The actual key issue is how to integrate these distributed data sources. And if all goes well, and I'm talking to you in 10 years' time about it, what will you be most proud and pleased to be able to tell me you've done? I think the fact that we've tried to understand how socials behave a bit better. Of course, if that brings about crisis relief, help in planning, because crisis management, I think this is really something where, at the moment, we fall down on. So, now we have clearly a very complex and wide-ranging programme, David, can you see something like that helping you in your work and helping your colleagues in the Foreign Office? Throughout government science, this could be a very useful initiative. When there is an emergency, one has to sometimes get all the information very quickly, and that can take time. And so if you can automate it in this way, the advantages not just to this country but to other countries would seem to be very important. Andrew, he talked about health amongst other things. You've done a lot of work on health in the developing world and health crises. What do you think? The potential is obviously enormous. I mean, I suppose if you can find ways to systematically gather structure and then present weighted analyses, whether it's spread of infection, for example, flu, for example, or um, other sorts of environmental factors that might drive spread of communicable diseases, there's obviously potential. It does still seem to be a little bit sort of theoretical and abstract, though, I have to say for now. I'd have thought myself that the benefit from this will not be necessarily prevention, but actually having better data 
that's comparable in order to manage crises when they do arrive? Well, we'll see in due course. I think next year the European Commission is going to announce which of these proposals has won the billion euros, and clearly Futurist is a strong contender. But that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week. All that's left now is for me to thank Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack for coming into the studio and David Clary for joining us on the phone from Oxford. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.